I have a a porch that is attached to the back of my house. It was built in 1977 out of wood, which means it is 45 years old, which means it's falling apart. And uh, Thursday night, Ian and I, my my son-in-law Ian and I, we kind of brought it down to its skeletal remains and uh, have something in place to last us through the winter. I would like to say that this version of my porch is not ideal. It is not my idealized version of what a porch should be. I have many strong opinions about what the porch should be, what the porch should do, what one should be able to do with the porch all year long. This porch is not the ideal porch. But I think most of us long for the ideal something. We long for an ideal spouse. We long for an ideal house, an ideal porch. We want the best. We want the thing that we perceive to be the best. And I was thinking this week, does the Bible give us a picture of the ideal church? And I think to some measure it does in Acts chapter 2. Just look at that again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 Uh, where Luke writes about this very early church and says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 43 of Acts 2, and awe came upon every soul. There's this this sense of the presence of God. Many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It wasn't communal living in the sense that maybe you think commune, but just a willingness to share. You, you have need, let me help you with that need. Uh, day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That looks like an ideal church to me. I would summarize it under two ways. Number one, there was warm togetherness. Number two, there was authentic spirituality. There's this warm togetherness here. They're they're devoted to fellowship. They're, They're sharing their stuff. They're sharing meals. They're having people in their homes. There's mutual trust and openness. They have favor with the outside world. But there's also this very authentic spirituality. They're devoted to the teaching, devoted to prayers. They're praising God daily. They've got glad and generous hearts. There's this steady stream of God saving people, one conversion after another. Day by day, the Lord's adding to the number. That means people are getting saved. That looks pretty ideal to me. Now, Now, these people are just people like you. They serve the same God, and they're people just like you, which means I think we can anticipate that we could experience this ideal, this ideal church under the providence of God and by the grace of God. It's the same God who saved us, and by God's grace and by God's providence, I think when you read Acts chapter 2, you can read that and say, Lord, I, I would, uh, this is what we would like. I think everybody would like this. Wouldn't you like this as a church? I, I hope you would. I think these are good things to want. In fact, a lot of whole like movements have begun by somebody reading this exact passage and then, and then setting it up as the target and say, this is who we're going to be. But what I want to point out to you is that this church, this ideal church in Acts 2, they didn't just fall into this. They didn't just stumble into this. 
I think it's an, an, an error to read this passage and say, well, let's be like that. All we have to do is be like that. I mean, this is the church we all want. And some people try to get there by forcing the fellowship, forcing the sharing, without asking the question, what was behind all of this? So that's what we want to get into in this series that we're beginning today called The Church. (laughs) Acts 2 is the result that we want, but we need to get there properly. It's like wanting a beautiful flowering vine, but if you don't carefully build a trellis, your vine will never grow. It has nothing to cling on to. It will, in fact, die. It needs the trellis in order for the vine to grow. God has given us an entire Bible, and if you look closely enough, you're going to be able to reverse engineer to this Acts 2 church. You kind of say, okay, here's, here's the result. What are then the means to get there? Luke is describing results, not means. In fact, if you just read the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see that there is a needed structure, there's needed commitment, there's needed suffering, a willingness to, to tolerate pain in order to live for the Lord. And that becomes like... like structure, Acts chapter 6, when you have the first prototype of deacons, and then you get to Acts 20, and then you've got Paul telling elders what to do. Or suffering, think about Acts chapter 8. The people are willing to suffer for the name of the Lord, and they're willing to, as we see here in Acts 2, suffer in order to to help one another along. And then there's commitment, Acts chapter 4 and 5, where they're willing to stand even in the face of great persecution. So those are just some of the things that underlie the foundation to Acts chapter 2. There are things people have to be committed to. There are, there are pains you have to be willing to suffer in order to work together and stay together. And there's a structure that has to be in place in order for the whole to operate. I was thinking about this this morning, and I thought, that's, that's interesting to me. Um, those are the three C's of church life. It's, you need a you know, confession. Here's what we all believe to be true that the Bible t- says about the gospel. You need a covenant that says, here's how we're going to act with each other, and a constitution, the three C's. A constitution says, these are how we're going to operate. The covenant says, here's, here's the attitude with which we'll do it. And a confession says, here's what we really believe to be true uh, from God's Word. So that's where I want to go in this series, not to confession, uh, constitution, don't worry, no constitution sermon, uh, but today what I, what I want to do is kind of odd. I don't think I've ever done this before, but I want to offer, um, like the Puritans, when you read their books, you, you, you realize like the first third of the book was them explaining why they were writing this book. <laughs> That can get old with the Puritans. I'm really hoping it doesn't get old for you this morning because what I want to do is explain why. Why this series? Why now? What is the point to all of this? And so I'm giving you a kind of extended introduction to the whole series, not just to the texts that we will look at today. You won't maybe know this, especially if you're new to the church, but this series was supposed to begin the first Sunday of COVID. It was all teed up and ready to go. And then the Lord had other plans, and we decided this is not the right time to begin a series on the church. So we turned away from COVID, and we talked about other things that were more important in that particular season of church life. And we could do that because, and and I want to say this carefully, the church is not the highest priority. I mean, it's hard to remember those early days of COVID. Like, I remember them because we were thinking, how many of our people are going to live? 
right? Like when it first hit, we're hearing things like, you know, mass casualties. And so we're wondering, and we're, we're just trying to be ready. Like we need to get everybody ready for glory potentially. So we're not going to do a series on church. We're going to talk about the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the single most important thing. We were in life and death stuff. So as, as vital as the church is, especially for the long-term work of the gospel, it comes after the gospel in importance. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, I delivered to you what was of first importance, the gospel. However, this, the local church, the local church is the pillar and the buttress of the gospel. It is God's preferred means of gospel protection, gospel proclamation, and gospel advancement in the world. And that means while a church health series is secondary to the gospel, the church itself is vital for long-term gospel success. Here, this may help you understand it. The, the church are like, is, are like the prongs that are holding the diamond on your engagement ring. The diamond is the gospel. That's what's most important. But you want it to be held properly so that it is most fully displayed. I read this morning that uh, four prongs are better than six if you want to see more of the diamond. Sorry if I just ragged on your engagement ring. Uh, but that, maybe that will help you see. It's, it's not of first importance, but it's of vital importance. And that means that we, as this church, I'm talking about other churches, just talking about us, we want to strive to be as biblically faithful as we can be when it comes to our church and how we do church. So this sermon in particular, like I said, is a kind of introduction to a, a whole series on the church. And it's a series that I hope by the end will provide us some minor changes in how we do some of the things in our church. I'll make each of those as we go as crystal clear as I possibly can. But let me try and illustrate the level of those changes. I think that Reformed Baptist elder-led congregationalism is the Formula One of church life. <laughs> now, if you know anything about automobile, I can't even say the word. If you know anything about car racing, which I know very little about, uh, all I know is F1, Formula One, is like at the top. Can I get a nod from somebody who knows something about racing? Thank you. Okay, good. Feeling slightly insecure. Uh, but that's what I read. So F1 is at the very top. So everybody, like, if you're an IndyCar driver, you're just kind of down here. Uh, but if, if you're like a Reformed Baptist, uh, elder-led congregational church, in my mind, you are the F1 of church life. There are no higher levels to go. There, there's, we're not go-karts. We're not indie cars. We are Formula One. But the word formula in Formula One actually means something. It, there is a formula. There, there is a set of rules by which every car must function. And there's very specific rules, rules about tires and rules about engine and and weight and lengths, like right down to the millimeter of things. It is a very precise set of rules. So a whole lot of things are already decided for you when it comes to F1 racing. That means the vehicle that you put on the track looks almost identical to the vehicle the other guy puts on the track because everybody is using the same formula. 
So the goal then in F1 racing is to fine-tune your car so well that you can beat the other guy who has almost the identical car to you. That makes sense? So the changes that we would like to make to Grace Fellowship Church are in that fine-tuning bit. We're not changing divisions. We're not becoming Indy cars. <laughs> We're staying F1. Reformed Baptist, elder-led congregationalism for the win. We are just, just fine-tuning that. Now, by the way, for the win, my illustration falls apart because we are not in a race against all other churches. We are not trying to beat all other churches. All other, we're especially not trying to beat all of the Reformed Baptist elder-led congregational churches. It is not a race, so just leave the image there. What I want to do is just be clear about the level of changes we're making. We're not talking about grand sweeping things. And as I said, as I go, I'm going to try and be precise about each one of those and as clear as possible. We think, and by we I mean the elders, think there's some ways to fine-tune the engine of this church so that we can line up closer to what the Bible says. So that's part of the reason for this series. It's to fine-tune some things in the life of our church. The elders and I, we felt like there are a few areas that we could use some improving in. And I'll make them as clear as I can. At one time, I thought about calling this series uh, Church Correctives. But that is both a very boring and negative title. I don't like it. And it doesn't capture all of what I'm trying to do here. Because what we're doing here in this series is far more than uh, just correcting some things. And at the same time, we want to admit that our church is not perfect. I know, please listen most to this part. I know this church is not perfect because almost everything we want to change is something I did. I planted Grace Fellowship Church 22 years ago. I wrote the Constitution. <laughs> I wrote the church covenant. Our members approved it, but that was me. I laid out the vision statement. I initiated all the first practices of the church. There were six of us when we started. Then the Nickersons came around, and then there were some others. And, and like, it, it just, but I'm saying, I'm telling you all that so you understand. I, my views have, I hope, changed and improved. This church is 22 years old, which means when I wrote all these documents, I was 33. You're like 27, you're thinking you're mature. Well, just take it from a guy who's 56, he's looking back on his 33-year-old self and saying, I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. <laughs> I, hadn't learned all, I haven't learned it all. I still haven't learned it all. But I'll tell you, I, I tallied this up. In the 22 years of this church, I have preached most of Genesis, 1 and 2 Samuel, Psalms, 1 and 2 Timothy. I have preached all of Exodus, Esther, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Amos, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 91 sermons, sorry if you were here, Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Revelation. I'm not telling you that to brag. I'm telling you that because it ought to be your expectation that having looked that every single word of all of those books of the Bible and preach them, our understanding of the church would improve. <laughs> it would get clarified, be refined. Not only that, we're 22 years old, which means we have 22 years of experience, and each new experience tests what you believe. Are we doing this because the Bible is telling us to do this, or is this just some tradition we started or some reflection of our own personal preferences? 
22 years. What, what does living out this biblical principle look like when you have 20 members? What does it look like when you have 100 members? What does it look like when you have 200 members? So experience is also a helpful teacher. It's not an authoritative one like the Bible is, but experience refines our wisdom and our prudence as we seek to live out the Bible. And then there's just all the other sources of information that are available now. We're not the first people nor the only people ever who have ever thought about church. For example, I just came back from a sabbatical. One of the things I did on my sabbatical was read uh, Nathan Lumpkin's book, 400 pages of Baptist Confessions of Faith. (laughs) You're like, that's weird. No, it was wonderful. I'll tell you why later on in another sermon, but that book wasn't out when we planted Grace Fellowship Church. That would have been really helpful to have. And then there's just people in our own lifetime whom the Lord has used in our lives. In 2006, I met Mark Dever. I was teaching at Toronto Baptist Seminary, and I was excited to meet Mark. The seminary was in, had invited him up for something, and I was eager to meet him. Didn't know much about him, but I knew he'd written a book called The Deliberate Church the year earlier in 2005. And uh, so we're about five years old as a church, and I get a hold of that book, and I'm like, there it is. Finally, somebody else is saying the stuff we're trying to do. In fact, they're saying it a lot better than I could say it. And so I was really eager to meet Mark, and I did meet Mark. Mark became a friend. Mark's been a real help to me through the years. In fact, 2007, uh, I went down to Capitol Hill Baptist Church on my first sabbatical. We spent a week down in D.C., and we spent several days at Capitol Hill Baptist Church because I wanted to see how they were living out these principles. I went back down there again in 2019 to what they do a weekender, just like we do a weekender. And Julian and I were there, and we just spent the whole time learning. In fact, every year since 2010, I've attended a small gathering of pastors, like-minded pastors, all sort of connected through CHBC, and that is my single most favorite event of the year. It's like a senior pastor think tank. It's wonderful. It's glorious. We talk about things like church polity. We talk about current theological issues, all that kind of stuff. Here's another influence. And then there's Dr. Michael Haken, a local uh, pastor, or he was an elder of a church. He's a professor at Heritage Baptist Theological Seminary. And Dr. Haken's been a longtime friend of mine. And in 2015, we invited Dr. Haken to come to the Hogtown Baptist Pastors Fellowship. If you're a member of the church, you'll know that that's a little service we try to provide for Baptist pastors in the city of Toronto and the surrounding area. 2015, I invited Michael to come, and he came. And uh, we started peppering him with all kinds of questions about church and the ordinances. And and I I recorded it. I was listening to it the other day. He he let me record it. It wasn't a secret. Uh, And uh, I was listening to it again. And I remember some of my presuppositions just getting shattered um, as he was explaining some theological categories and, and then talking about Baptist history. So... Our elders have been thinking about these things for a long time. We're not like ecclesiology nerds. Like we're very much concerned about ecclesiology is just the study of the church. We're not, we're not like, like nerding out on ecclesiology. We want those prongs to hold the diamond as good as possible. Susan had her ring to the jeweler sometime recently, and they're like, yeah, your diamond's about to fall out, right? So the the prongs can get twisted. The prongs can get bent. They can get a little out of shape. And so that's what we're doing in this particular series. What I'm trying to do is hold up the ideal and then along the way kind of tighten up and clean up so we can be closer to that Acts 2 church. 
And part of the reason is I want Grace Fellowship Church to thrive for as long as she can. You want a sobering thought? Think of a church in Toronto that has thrived for more than 100 years. Yeah. See if you can see if you can make a list of one or two. I'd love to hear your list. So I would love for Grace Fellowship Church to be the outlier in that list and love for all of you to understand why we're doing what we're doing so that when I move on to glory or whatever happens to me, uh, well, I'm planning on going to glory. I thought I should clarify that. Uh, uh, I don't know when I'm done here. I'll stop talking. Um, I just, I just want this place to be where everybody gets it, where, the, where they understand. Like, we don't live for the prongs, but the prongs are essential because we, we're all about Jesus and the gospel, and we want the gospel to shine. Uh, it's probably worth adding here that uh, we're really not intending to change anything until this series is over. So one of the things I wanted to do is bring back the sermon discussion time. So as we go along, we do a sermon discussion, which happens in the lower gym. You can kind of go down those stairs. Just keep going downstairs. You, you can't go any further than that lower gym. I'm always happy to meet after the service with whoever has questions, wants to talk. Always glad to do that. But if you're, if you're just tracking with me in my extended puritanical uh, introduction to this entire series, if you're still here, thank you. Um, but if you're, if you're tracking with me, you'll realize what I'm suggesting is I have had my mind changed since the day we planted Grace Fellowship Church 22 years ago. And it has been changed by the Word of God. It's been through the study of God's Word that I think our thinking can be refined. But I understand that takes time. That takes study. That takes reading it for yourself. So we're not in some mad rush to just, you know, I've, I've seen churches that are like, now we're going this way, and now we're going this way, and now we're going this way. And I, that's not who we are. If you've been here, you know that. We're, we're pretty steady eddies. But what I want to do is what we've always done here is I want to persuade you from the Scriptures, and then we'll all move together moving forward. Does that make sense? So in light of that, one thing I want to request from you is patience. Now let me explain why. I cannot possibly say everything that needs to be said in one sermon. It's just not possible. So what I want from you is patience. I believe the Bible teaches a very consistent and clear doctrine of the church, but it's going to take several weeks to present it all and then start to tie it all together at the end. So think about when we study God. We've done that many times in the life of our church. We're just going to study God. And one of the ways we study God is we take a certain attribute of God, say his eternality, and we isolate that. And we, we look at texts that deal with his eternality, and we try to go a little deeper in our understanding of what it means for God to have an eternal nature. But then we, we go back and we plug that into all that we know about God. How does his eternality affect his providence? How does it affect his power? How does it affect his wisdom, right? So that's what we're trying to do here. I'm going to move kind of systematically, one thing at a time. I may not be able to show you in every single instance how it fits into the whole, but I promise to try my hardest at the end to paint you a really clear picture. So I'm looking for you uh, to grant me patience as we move through that process. 
Now, along the way, I'm still in the introduction, by the way. Thanks for being here. Uh, but along the way, uh, I also want to take opportunity to address a couple of things. Uh, one of them is what Carl Truman has called the rise and triumph of the modern self. Just a brief, this will help me. Have you read that book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Me and half of Pat's hand, which means you read half the book. Uh, Tim, where are you? Are you in here? What's, what's the other book called? Anybody know what the other book called? Strange New World. Highly recommended to you. It's a, it's a condensed form. But, but Truman has identified some really important things in that book. Um, like you may not think a whole lot about your own culture. If you, if you were to grab a fish and pull the fish out of water and say, tell me what water is. Well, first of all, fish can't speak. Kids, you should have known that. Uh, fish can't speak. But if it could, I don't think the fish would really be able to tell you much about the water because it's what he lives in. It's what he breathes in. He's just in it. He's surrounded. It's, it's both outside of him and in him. And in the same way, it's very difficult for us to discern our own culture, what we live in, what's, what's a part of us. But there's parts of our culture. The, there's, there's the water that we swim in. That seeps into the church all the time. We're, we're fighting that all the time. So there's things like this. We begin to read our Bibles in a very individualistic way that, frankly, the original authors could not even conceive of. It's just not their worldview. It wasn't their culture. It's not how they thought of themselves. And we ask questions of the biblical text that the text is not intending to answer. And the worst thing we do is we read Bible words with big presuppositions of meaning that actually change what the original author intended. So part of what I'm going to be doing through this series is trying to challenge some of those presuppositions and and really get all of us to read our Bibles better, to deal with the actual text of the Scriptures and work hard to understand what the words meant to the people they were being written to. And that means we need to identify and, and set aside some of those cultural expectations. Last thing on my introduction. In case you think I have totally changed the way I preach, <laughs> uh, I, I, if you're new to the church or you're here from Germany visiting, great to have the Liebenzell folks here. There they are. They're all feeling embarrassed that I pointed them out. But anyway, if, if you're new to the church, you may think like, oh, this is how the guy always preaches. No, it's not. My bread and butter is taking a book of the Bible and just plowing our way through it from beginning to end. But it's not the only way to preach. I intend to continue to preach the Bible, but I'm going to do it in a slightly different way for this particular series. So, for instance, we read from Acts. I've preached the book of Acts. I tried to point out some of those things about church and maybe about baptism, maybe about the Lord's Supper as we're going through Acts. But what I'm going to do this time is take maybe one Sunday on the Lord's Supper, and we'll look not just at Acts, but we'll look at what all of the New Testament has to say, and with the Lord's Supper, the Old Testament too. And that will help to frame our understanding of that. So we're still dealing with the Bible, but instead of dealing with one book of the Bible, we're going to deal with parts of it, right? Frankly, that's much harder preaching. I like the other one better, but it will serve us if we do this. That is the end of the introduction. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So what I want to begin with for this particular sermon and this particular series is a definition. A definition of the church. 
I proposed a very similar version of this back in September 6, 2020. Just put that in your calendar where you are. So COVID hits in March, September. I was here. I was behind a plexiglass screen. There was 15 people in the gym. Uh, Josh, you actually sang in that service. I watched the video. Um, You sang to us because we couldn't sing. We went outside to sing. Uh, I was trying to preach from like 20 to 25 minutes, so I was jamming all kinds of stuff in. Most of you were watching online, we think, we hope. Um, And and I thought, you know, why don't we just go back and kind of refresh ourselves on that definition of what a church is. I don't want to assume that, uh, all I'm saying is, I don't want to assume you all remember that particular sermon. I didn't remember that particular sermon. I had to look it up online. So I'm going to assume you didn't remember that particular sermon. And let me help you by giving you this particular answer to the question, what is a church? If you like, here is the formula. All right, Formula One Racing. Here's the formula to elder-led congregationalism. Here we go. It's, it's in your song sheet if you want to read along with me. Like not out loud, but you can follow along as I read. The local church. All right, we're talking about the local church is a group of saved people who identify with one another and seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship Him and proclaim His Word, to affirm one another's profession of faith by the right practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to display to the world His gospel by their authentic love. This is my definition of local church. So I want to take our F1 car and back it into the garage. Where's Darren? He'd like this. Uh, We're going into the garage, and uh, we're going to pop the hood, and we're just going to kind of examine the engine a little bit. And I'll do this in this little part of the outline is there in, in your song sheet. So let's begin with this, the word church. Okay, this, this is really helpful if you get this. The word church means a gathering of people. That's what it means. The word church means a gathering of people. It's thought that the English word church comes from an old English word that was coined from a Greek word, kurieke, kurieke uh, of the Lord, is what that Greek word means, of the Lord. And so somehow of the Lord in Greek became uh, like Syrkichi in Old English, which 400 years later became church. This is important because this is one significant way you are different from the first readers of the New Testament. Because when they read their Bible, they didn't see the word church. They saw the word ekklesia, that's a Greek word, But in their mind, that word meant a gathering of people. That's all it meant, a gathering of people. It doesn't even mean a gathering of Christian people. It just means a gathering of people. I can prove it to you if you'll go with me to Acts chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible there, turn to Acts chapter 19. They saw this word, ecclesia, as an assembly, a congregation, a gathering of people. It's a very common word used in the New Testament time primarily of political gatherings. In fact, uh, if ecclesia was translated church every time in the New Testament, something funny would happen. I'll do the funny first. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 32. 
Here it comes. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the church was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. I've always thought to myself, I think I said this last time, but that's, that's a great description of a terrible members meeting. <laughs> some cried out one thing, some another, for the church was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Okay, this is, that's not what it's describing, though. What is it describing? In Acts chapter 19, Paul has been preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and people are getting converted, and a dude named Demetrius starts a riot. So that's what's going on. It's just the word ecclesia is being used. It's translated in the ESV as assembly. Some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly, we might translate it the mob, was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. So this is just the normal use of the word ecclesia. It is a gathering of people, in this case, a really rotten gathering, a mob gathering. So there's lots of shouting and other things. Don't worry about that. Drop down to verse 37. We're going to get into the middle of the speech of the town clerk, like the mayor. You've brought these men, the Christians here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular ecclesia, in the regular assembly. That word regular is actually lawful, the legal assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly, the mob. <laughs> so there's the word assembly used three times. And Mr. Town Clerk here makes a distinction. He says, uh, we're a Roman city, and uh, therefore we have a legal process. You're not allowed, if you, if you have mob riots in your city, they can send the soldiers in and just wipe you out. Mob riots not allowed in Roman cities. And so he's very, very concerned. So he says, you need to get rid of your illegal assembly, and uh, we'll call a legal assembly if that's what is needed. So I'm, I'm pointing this out in detail because I want you to see, to the first reader, they're not reading church in all these references, okay? Is that, what, is that making sense? They're not reading and saying, uh, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular church. Or in verse 41, when he had said these things, he dismissed the church. But it is the word we translate church. It's ecclesia. It's the same word. So that word means an assembly, a gathering of people. And that gives us some clarity on why Christians understood the word ecclesia to refer to a gathering of people. Now, what kind of gathering it is depends on the context. When the early Christians are using ecclesia, it's in the sense of an organized physical gathering of all the citizens of the invisible universal church who happen to live in a particular city or town. And Jesus is the one who initiated the, word, the use of this word. If you look at Matthew 16, you don't need to turn there, but he says, I will build my, you know, I will build my ecclesia. And they knew exactly what he meant. I'll build my gathering of people. And Stephen, when Stephen is about to be stoned to death and he's talking about Israel's history, he, he calls Israel an ecclesia in the wilderness. The, the, when they gathered at Mount Sinai, they were the congregation gathered at the foot of the mountain. They were the ecclesia gathered at the foot of the mountain. So this word translated church in your Bible means what? A gathering of people. Thank you. A gathering of people. 
This takes us to number two. What we consider church, when we think of church, is a gathering of saved people who makes up the ecclesia of Jesus? That's an important question. There's a time not long ago, historically speaking, where your citizenship is what determined you were a member of the church. That's the only determining factor. You're born in this canton or this city-state, then you're a member of the church. You're not born here, you're not a member of the church. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the ecclesia, the gathering of Jesus' people, is made up of all those for whom Jesus has died, all those who have repented from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. We might call this the universal church, all the saved people. Ephesians 1, verse 22. This is a fascinating verse to me. He, the Father, put all things under his, Christ's feet, okay, Father, at the, at the ascension, when Christ goes to the right hand of the Father, the Father puts all things under his feet. He has dominion over all things. He put all things under his feet, and the Father gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Let that penny drop. Christ, who is over all things, is given to the church. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That means that what we think of a church uh, as church is very distinct from the rest of the world. And that distinction lies in whether or not Jesus died for you. Paul picks up this idea later in the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, you know it, husbands, as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Jesus gave himself up for his church, the whole church, all ever who will be saved. So the church is made up of Christians, people who are Christians, people for whom Jesus gave up his life and love, people whom God has saved. Has God saved you? Nobody is born a Christian. Sometimes my friends from East Asia, I say, are you a Christian? They say, yes, I was born a Christian. And, I, and they go, well, I, I was converted at this point, but, but I want to be clear because in certain parts of the world, you, you would say that. I was born a Christian. My family is Christian. I was born a Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is have you been born again? Have you repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, that's something you could do even today. Turn away from self-reliance and turn toward Christ, the Savior that God has provided. And once that happens, you become a part of what we will call the local church. I don't think I need to convince you that the church is not a building. You're in a gym. <laughs> it doesn't look very churchy, especially with a heartbeat or whatever that is. Anyway, uh, but, but let me just give you one like, proof of that. Acts chapter 18, verse 22, when he, Paul, landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So Paul didn't walk up to a cathedral and say, Cathedral of Caesarea, I greet you. Right? He's greeting people. It's the gathering of people, those people who have been saved by Jesus. So the church, as we're using the word, the church, is fundamentally all the people God has saved. This takes me to number three. 
these saved people intentionally join with a local physical gathering of other saved people. So if you look at the first part of our definition, the local church is a group of saved people who identify with one another. That's what we're thinking about here. And seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together. Did you know the Bible never speaks about a person who is not a member of a local church? Because it's not something the Bible even considers a possibility. There is one exception to that. Do you know what it is? Ethiopian eunuch. Dude on the way to Ethiopia. Why isn't he a part of a church? Because he's one. That's a gathering of a person. And for there to be a church, there must be two. Which is why in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about two or three. In other words, you've got to have more than one person to form a church. So a local church is a group of saved people who are in one location, people who have intentionally identified with the other Christians around them. And you can see this in like the introduction to the letters, for instance, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, that church. Or read the Revelation where, where Paul talks about, you know, letter to the seven churches and to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna. Each church conceived both as being part of the grand and as being on its own. If you read all 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord and ours. That's a beautiful example of both universal and local church all in one sentence. You're in the universal church if you're a Christian. But you guys live in Corinth, so you're a member of the local church there in Corinth. So the Bible always thinks of church in these two categories, universal church, local church. And in this series, I'm focusing on local church, the physical gathering of Christians in one locale. And the gathering has to gather. That's the point. you got to gather. The assembly has to assemble. Maybe you're a, a member of uh, a basketball team. Well, that doesn't mean that your basketball team has to move into your house and you have to eat all your meals with them and you've you got to, like, walk to school with them and hold hands all day long. No, I mean, you have your life, they have yours. You have your life, they have theirs. Yeah. But it's similar with a church, like the church gets together. So when Paul and Barnabas return from their mission trip to their local church, the church that sent them out, Acts 14, 27, when they arrived, they gathered the church. That's, they synagogued the ecclesia. <laughs> they gathered the church together, declared all that God had done with them. So the local church, the saved people in one locale, must regularly gather together. That's the only thing that makes sense out of what Paul would say to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, just listen to the words. He's writing to one local church, and he says to them, in the first place, when, when you come together as church, I hear there's divisions among you. So that's like the team has come together to, for a practice or for the game, right, the basketball team. You've got to come together. When you come together as a church, when you officially assemble as First Baptist Ecclesia of Corinth, there are divisions among you. That's unfortunate. When the team comes to the game, when you assemble as the gathering, that means there are times that the members of this church are not together, but then they physically gather together. When you go home, you're no longer assembled. You are still a member of this church, but you're no longer gathered. All I'm trying to stress here is that the church must gather. 
You cannot say you're a member of Grace Fellowship Church and never come. Say, oh, I, I, exceptions, exceptions, I know. We'll talk about some of those. But we're talking about the norm here. We haven't said how often you have to gather. We, we're, all I'm saying is it must happen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, Paul talks about when the whole church comes together. It's a distinct gathering of the people of God. So a church is a group of saved people who regularly gather together. But that leads to the question, for what purpose? I'm just going to deal with the first bit of that. So this is number four and last. The local church meets together to do, to do certain things. I gave you three purpose clauses there. I'm going to unpack the other two later in other sermons, but I just want to address the first. I, I assume you all agree with me that we're to do everything to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Thank you. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So then whether you eat or drink, the most mundane things of life, whatever you do, that's everything, do all to the glory of God. And one way you glorify God is by regularly coming together to do what God has called his saved people to do. Look at that definition again. Local church is a group of saved people who identify with one another, seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship him and proclaim his word. That's all I want to think about to end, to worship God and proclaim God's word. So if you read your Bible, which I hope you do, you will know that God has always directed his people, Old Testament and New, to gather together to worship him in the ways he has prescribed. We could go to the Old Testament. I don't have time. Let me just go to the New. Acts chapter 13, you get a description of this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that's when the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. And this corporate worship was obviously a, a, a group effort. It was intelligible for everyone who was there. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Nevertheless, Paul says, in church, meaning when we are gathered together, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's talking about the gift of, I think, his foreign languages, and he says, yeah, that's, that doesn't serve when we come together. When we come together, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a language nobody understands. So corporate worship is a group effort. It is intelligible. There's, there's a strong emphasis on prayer in this worship. Acts chapter 6, the apostles say we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That didn't mean they're going to hide in the ivory tower and pray all day and study the Bible and then burp out a sermon once in a while. It meant they were going to be about that with the people of God, praying with them and preaching the Word to them. And in the context of Paul instructing Timothy on what was to happen when the corporate church gathered, he says explicitly, I desire that in every place men everywhere would lift holy hands in prayer. We could add singing to the list, Colossians 3. But a significant part of worshiping God involves hearing from his word, hearing it read, hearing it expounded. It really helped here when you look at what are called the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Paul writing to younger pastors and telling them what to do, in particular, what to do when the church is church, when it gathers well, first thing he says is it, the leaders of that church, elders, must be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2. You, you can have all the character in the world, but if you can't explain the text of Scripture, you can't be an elder. 
1 Timothy 4.13, he says, until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, what Dwight did for us earlier in this service, reading God's Word. Devote yourself to exhortation, to teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The gospel, the Bible. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And the gospel is at the core of that teaching. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's why Paul would write to the Galatians and, and gives that amazing event where Peter is toying, messing with the gospel, and he calls him out in front of everybody. But before he gets to that in Galatians chapter 1, he says, even if we, meaning the apostle Paul, even if me and my merry band of apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven, a divine emissary, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's the strongest language possible. So I think you're going to hear most of that and go, yeah, right on, check, like that. Local church is a group of safe people who seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship him and proclaim his word. That's all, but it's the foundation. It's the foundation to this series as well. And it has implications. We'll get to some of the implications in the coming weeks, but I'd like to land the plane on this sermon with its very long introduction by asking you three questions. Number one is this, and I'm, I, these are questions I really do mean. Are you willing to see what the Bible says about church? You're just willing to look at the Bible, see what it says, and, and maybe in that process have your ideas about church tweaked a little bit, refined, sharpened. So is there a willingness in your part to just see what the Bible says? That's, that's going to be super important. Number two, are you willing to be wrong, to be corrected by the word? like I have been. Are you willing to do the really hard work of stifling your preferences and presuppositions and just letting the Word of God speak and dictate your actions? There's a difference between being a Berean and being obstinate, right? <laughs> so we want to be Bereans. What, did, what were the Bereans? They, they went to the Word of God to see whether the things Paul was saying were true. By all means, please do that with everything I say. Go to the Word of God. Test it against the Word of God. Number three, are you willing to do the things the Bible says are important even if you can't figure out why they're important? That's also a very important question for all of your life. Because sometimes when you're young and, for instance, the Bible says you need self-control, that may not seem really important to you at the moment. Hopefully, this series on the church is going to take us somewhere. I know where I want us to end up. I want us to end up like it is in Acts chapter 2, warm togetherness, 
more warm togetherness, more authentic spirituality. I think we've got lots and lots of that. I just want, it, I want more of it. So I'm inviting you to join me. I want you to come behind the curtain with me. I want you to go under the hood with me and fine-tune our little Grace Fellowship Church race car. And, and we'll get her running as smoothly and as godly and as bibline as possible. All to the glory of God and Jesus our Savior, who himself is the ruler and the king of the church. Let's pray together.